0: Section 25 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 7, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Anne of Denmark, Chapter 2, Part 1. The birth of an heir to Scotland put an end to the long series of tumults, with which Bothwell had agitated the court. Very soon after this auspicious event, he perceived that all his partisans fell from him, upon which he fled to France. Queen Anne brought her firstborn son into the world at Stirling Castle, February 19th, 1594. The king determined to give him the name of his own unfortunate father, and the name of the queen's father. And Henry Frederick, the boy was named, with the first Protestant baptismal rites that had ever been administered to a prince in this island. The best insight to the domestic routine of Anne and James, in Scotland, is afforded by the royal privy purse expenses, which form a species of daily journal of their harmless lives. Through our long course of biographies, we have found that the closer inquisition that is made into the letters and journals of the royal dead, who were most reviled in the 16th and 17th centuries, the more respectable do their characters appear whether the same rule holds good in regard to those that were lauded to idolatry our readers will best answer by the perusal of what we have collected all we can say is that we invent not and set down not in malice the accounts of the lord treasurer of scotland commence but in fifteen ninety three and conclude with the accession to the throne of england Many a quaint and naive entry is to be found therein, but we must again warn our readers lest they marvel at the munificence of our royal oddity king james the sixth that his disbursements were made in puns scots for instance item by his majesty's precept to certain poor strangers hungarian captives to the turk two hundred pounds may fifteen ninety four item by his majesty's precept to Helen Latil, his highness's own nurse, and to Grizzle and Sarah Gray, her doctors, for their apparelling again the baptism of his highness's dearest son, the prince, 646 pounds, 13 shillings, 4 pence. Item, by his majesty's command, for transporting of the lion from Holyrood house to Shriveling, or Sterling, and there back again, 207 pounds, 16 shillings. What part the lion was to play at the royal christening, unfortunately, we cannot explain. Item paid by the Queen's Majesty's missive for the furniture of ten great deer hounds, appointed by her to pass into Denmark. There is an item of their Majesty's charity in almoose, to a poor destitute wretch who had laid herself down at the gate of Holyrood Palace in a peculiarly unfortunate situation, then follows a requisition from the king for peace and quiet at the royal baptism. James Lennox accompanied three heralds, with their coats displayed, and two trumpeters, passing to the Mercat Cross at Shrevelling with letters or proclamation, charging all and sundry, our sovereign lord's lieges of the Quat estate, quality or degree. Savor they be of, to set apart their particular feuds, quarrels and grudges, and keep good peace during the time of the baptism as they tender his majesty's honor and estimation of their native country it is curious to observe that this precept gives tacit permission for the continuation of the feuds quarrels and grudges of the sovereign lord's lieges so that they have but the decency to suspend them on this day of high festival the prince was baptized according to the ritual of the episcopal church of scotland archbishop spottiswood has not disdained to narrate the ceremonial. The Countess of Mar, the governess of the infant prince, and the Queen's ladies, brought him from his nursery, and laid him in a state bed in the Queen's presence chamber. From whence they carried him in procession, and delivered him to his nearest relative, the Duke of Lennox, by whom he was presented to the ambassador of his godmother, Queen Elizabeth, the Earl of Sussex. Lord Hume carried the Prince's ducal coronet of Rothsay, lord livingstone the towel lord seton the basin and lord Semple the laver the english ambassador who represented queen elizabeth the godmother followed with the royal babe whose train was supported by lord sinclair and Urquart, and four scottish gentlemen of honourable lineage bore a canopy over him when the procession arrived at the door king james who was seated there rose and received the english ambassador who delivered the babe to the duke of lennox and seated himself in a stall decorated with velvet the service was performed by the bishop of aberdeen the lord Lyon proclaimed the titles of the prince gold and silver were thrown from the window among the populace and then the heir of scotland was brought back in procession to the state bed in his mother's presence chamber when the ceremony of baptizing her infant was ended the queen of scotland received in state the presence and congratulations of the foreign ambassadors who had assisted at this rite. Sir James Melville, who was present on this occasion, gives a lively sketch of the scene. I was appointed, says the statesman historian, to stand a little behind, but next to Her Majesty's chair, to the English, German, and Danish ambassadors, the Queen made answer herself, to the States of Holland, albeit Her Majesty could speak seemly French, she whispered in my ear to declare to them her answer then every ain of them by order made their presents as god-barned gifts the jewels of precious stones she resave it with her own hand and then deliver it to me to put into their cases and lay them on a table quilk was prepare it in the middle of the chamber queen elizabeth sent a cupboard of plate and some cups of massive gold Holland presented a parchment with a yearly pension of 5,000 florins to the little prince. The cups were so heavy that Sir James Melville declares he could hardly lift them. I leave to others to set down their value. All I know is they were soon melted and spend it. I mean, so many as were of gold, quilts should have been kept it in store for posterity. But then they that gaff advised to break them wanted their part, as they had done of the queen's toker of the amount and times of payment of this said toker or dowry for the squandering of which the sully of scotland is so indignant no very decided account can be given however as melville affirms that a toker was spent it is evident that some ready cash had been received by king james the heart of the young queen was alive to the most passionate instincts of maternity and these were painfully outraged when she found it was her husband's intentions to leave her young son in the royal fortress of stirling to the care of his hereditary guardian the earl of mar the old countess of mar the king's former governant was to be inducted into the same office for the infant henry to the queen's extreme grief she earnestly pleaded to have him with her during his tender infancy, instead of being restricted to occasional visits. It was in vain that King James explained to her that it was part and parcel of the law of Scotland, for its heir to be reared in Stirling Castle, under the care of an Earl of Mar, and that he owed his own life and crown to this providential arrangement, and that the Erskine family were most worthy of this high trust. But the Queen would not be content." then began a series of sorrows and disquiets which not a little impaired the peace of the royal pair queen anne with all the anguish of maternal jealousy saw the first caresses of her little one bestowed on the old countess of mar and her son and she hated them with all the vivacity of her nature she was at linlithgow palace with king james may twenty fifth fifteen ninety five when her little henry had arrived at the engaging age of fifteen months old and being in the utmost distress of mind, because the Mars had possession of her darling, of whom she was deprived, she bestowed a curtain lecture on King James regarding the subject nearest her heart. The substance of this exordium was, however, overheard and transmitted to England by a spy at the earliest opportunity. The queen pleaded piteously with her husband that she might not live separated from her infant. She urged her constant affection and reminded King James, how she had left all her dear friends in denmark to follow him she represented that her brother king christian the fourth for love of her had ever been his sure friend therefore it was an ill return to refuse her suit founded on reason and nature to prefer giving the care of her babe to a subject who neither in rank nor deserving was the best his majesty had this was scarcely just to the Earl of Mar, who had been, at the same time, playfellow and guardian to his orphan king, and was withal, one of the best subjects he ever had, and he was right to place his infant in the care of one so tried and trusty, even if the law had not prescribed it. King James, in reply to this curtained lecture, said, that his infant he knew to be safe in Mar's keeping, and though he doubted nothing of her good intentions, yet if some faction got strong enough, she could not hinder his boy being used against him as he himself had been against his unfortunate mother this reply which ought to have shown anne that her bereavement of her babe was not an intentional wrong but an inexorable necessity did not bring to her mind the conviction it ought to have done she pleaded wept and even coaxed the king that the matter might be referred to council in which she had secretly obtained a large faction of persons who only cared for her wishes as they militated against the Earl of Mar, The king perceived very quickly indications of rebellion in his council, and to his great uneasiness ascertained that his queen was perversely inclined to be made a tool of the factious. The correspondence of Anne of Denmark is a very curious feature in her history. It is almost unique, not only among queenly epistles, but is almost deserving a place in the history of letter writing she seldom wrote by deputy her autographs are all holographs and her letters extant consist of a series of mere notes in which though a foreigner she contrived to infuse her whole meaning these little missives are written in the most exquisite italian hand they are most of them spirited and humorous all are pithy and to the purpose of the writer the first note extant in the queen's hand we are inclined to think belongs to the time when she was intriguing to get possession of her infant, and was meant to provide funds for her rebellious journey to Stirling. There is a hurry of spirit in its inditing, which could belong to no other period of her life, excepting at another attempt of the kind, made when her husband was absent, taking possession of the English throne. But this document is written in the Scottish dialect, while to the Queen's credit, she had made herself mistress of the English language before she became Queen of England and wrote and spelled it far better than did her great-granddaughter, Queen Anne of Augustine Celebrity. The present document is addressed to George Harriet, banker and jeweler to Anne of Denmark, who is almost as much immortalized by the genius of Sir Walter Scott as by his own good works. Unfortunately, Anne of Denmark never dated a note or letter if she had known what a great inconvenience this careless habit would be to her dutiful biographer she surely would have amended it for her own sake and precept of the queen george harriet i earnestly desire you present to send me two hundred pounds with all expedition because i mon best me away presentee. anna r in the course of a few days, the king informed the queen that, as her heart was so entirely set on seeing her infant, she should go to Stirling Castle forthwith. But she refused, lest it should be supposed, that she went thither out of compliment to the Earl of Mar, to grace the wedding of Lord Glamis. She declared she was not well and would not go, but the king obliged her to obey him. She set out on horseback May 30th with her train, but either was or pretended to be so seriously discomposed by the caperings and rearing of her horse that she took to her bed at linlithgow palace and professed herself too ill to go any farther. The earl of mar made a journey to pay his duty to her in her sickness, but was not admitted to her presence for fear, as it was said, that he should perceive her illness to be fictitious. He was besides so uncivilly treated by her people, that he was glad to return to Stirling Castle the same day that he left it. The queen added to the ingratitude of insulting so trusty a friend as the Earl of Mar, the folly of an attempt, which in the eyes of a less indulgent husband than King James, would have been considered downright rebellion. She planned an expedition to Stirling Castle while the king was absent on summer progress she meant to head an armed band, composed of the lords of her faction and their followers, who were by force to take the infant prince from the Earl of Mar. The king heard of this plot and made a journey from Falkland Palace, speedy enough to prevent it. He obliged the queen to travel with him to Stirling Castle, but differently attended to what she had devised. Here the king permitted her to see and caress her babe as much as she chose, but was inexorable in his intentions of retaining mar as his guardian indeed he left the following document in the hands of mar when they quitted the castle my lord mar because in the surety of my son consisteth my surety and i have concredited to you the charge of his keeping on the trust i have of your honesty this i command you out of my own mouth being in company of those i like otherwise for any charge or necessity which can come from me, you shall not deliver him. And in case God call me at any time, see that neither for the queen, nor the estates their pleasure, you deliver him till he be eighteen, and that he command you himself. This from your assured friend, James R. Shriveling or Sterling Castle, June twenty fourth, 1595. A succession of stormy debates, agitated by the queen's faction in the council, ensued, but all failed in shaking the king's firm trust in the loyalty of the Earl of Mar and his lady mother. To the infinite discontent of the royal mother, her little son remained at Stirling. Whoever glances over the events of the seven successive minorities of the kings of Scotland will plainly perceive that it was the systematic policy of the oligarchy of that country, to get possession of the heir of the kingdom, and as soon as possible, to destroy the father, and govern, during a long minority, according to their own notions of justice, which was invariably the law of the strongest. To obviate this customary order of affairs, James the Third had fortified the castle of Stirling, and educated his heir in that stronghold, but his barons had at last, obtained possession of the royal boy, and destroyed their sovereign in his name james the sixth and the earl of mar resolved that the infant henry should never be set up as a parasital puppet the king had studied the history of his country and we have just shown how he had explained to his queen that he had himself in his unconscious infancy been made the instrument of his unfortunate mother's deposition and that the same tragedy would be repeated if her boy was not left in the keeping of the earl of mar who had even in youth proved himself well worthy the trust of being hereditary guardian of the Prince of Scotland, and captain of Stirling Castle. It must lower the character of Anne of Denmark, in the eyes of every one, both as woman and queen, that she was not to be convinced by these unanswerable inferences from the experience of the past, but preferred to indulge the mere instincts of maternity at the risk of involving her husband, her infant, and their kingdom, in the strife and misery of unnatural warfare the queen continued to torment herself and all around her with her grievances and jealousies regarding her eldest son till her thoughts were for a time detached by the birth of her second child in the words of our chronicle the queen was deliberate of a lady at falkland august fifteenth fifteen ninety six who was baptized by the name of elizabeth the baptism took place at holyrood and the city of edinburgh stood godmother to the scottish princess being represented by the person of the provost. Perhaps the provost's good dame would have been the more fitting representative of the mural godmother, the romantic city of Dun-Eden. The young princess was the name child of Queen Elizabeth. She lived to be that beautiful queen of Bohemia, the protestant heroine, whose adventures formed so romantic an episode in the history of the seventeenth century and who was the ancestress of our present royal family the infant princess was given to the charge of lord livingstone who with his wife and family had been devoted adherents of mary queen of scots the calvinistic kirk murmured because lady livingstone was a catholic king james answered that he did not give the royal babe to her care but to that of her husband though it might have been answered that lord livingstone would scarcely know what to do with the infant without the agency of his lady the ministers of the kirk were exceedingly malcontent at this period some of them refusing to pray for the queen and others when they did pray did it in such a sort that it would have been more decent to have let it alone good lord prayed master blake in the pulpit we must pray for our queen for the fashion's sake but we have no cause for she will never do us ony good he added all the kings were the divil's bairns and that queen elizabeth was an atheist the contumacious prayer-maker was required to ask pardon for all these extraordinary aspirations especially for having treasonably calumniated his majesty's bedfellow the queen master blake sturdily refused to ask her majesty's pardon and was banished but a most notable broil was raised before peace was restored between the court and the kirk anne of denmark was always looked upon by the presbyterians with a degree of angry jealousy as a supporter of the episcopal church she had been brought up a lutheran and she naturally leaned to that faith which best coincided with the tenets of her own religion she seldom exercised any self-control respecting her preferences and had probably incurred the ill-will of the kirk by expressing imprudent partiality she appears for many years of her life to have been utterly ignorant of the art of governing either herself or others or of calculating the probable consequences of her word and actions her chief fault was a passionate temper which rendered her liable to fits of petulance like a spoiled child her affections were however most enduring and tenacious and when once she formed an esteem for any one she never deserted that person if ever says sir james melville she found that the king had, by wrong information, taken a prejudice against any of his faithful subjects or servants. She always exerted herself to obtain information of the truth, that she might speak with the more firmness in their favor. As an instance, he mentions that when his brother, Robert Melville, was disgraced by the king, the queen represented, that he had himself presented the brothers of the Melville family to her in her youth, as tried servants of his grand-dame and his unfortunate mother, that he had recommended her to be guided by their advice, and she had found their truth and worth. The king listened to her remonstrances and restored Sir Robert Melville to his good graces. The queen was brought to bed of a daughter at Dalkeith Palace, December 24th, 1598. The venerable Mr. David Lindsay baptized the child by the name of Margaret in Holyrood Chapel. In preparation for the birth of this princess, King James ordered the following articles: Item, by His Highness's precept, the furniture following made to the use of his dearest bedfellow, foreign cradle to the bairn, sixteen pounds; Item, foreign chair for the maistress nurse, four pounds; Item, for the seat at the feet; Item, to four stools for the rockers, two pounds; Item, to the rites expenses passing to Dalkeith to set up the work and to the rights children in drink silver for the infant princess herself there is little outlay except for munches of lane flannel nightcaps, caps and purling to hem the same she died in infancy in the same accounts occur many entries for silk stockings for the queen and her children but they were called by the disagreeable name of silk shanks a purchase was made for the princess elizabeth of ain burst to straight or stroke her hair with and this we verily believe to be no other than a hairbrush a small piece of satin is charged to make the little princess a mask and two babies or dolls bought for her to play with as the century waned to a close and queen elizabeth's years approached old age the balance of power in the island began to incline most unusually towards the northern kingdom flattering intimations from the english nobility ever and anon arrived at the scottish court from the secret recognition by some one or other among them of james's hereditary right to their throne he subsequently declared he possessed for the last seven years of queen elizabeth's reign more power in the english privy council than that queen herself this was but according to the law of retribution for during the chief part of that century english intrigue had repeatedly revolutionized scotland and fostered therein a party and religion whose professed principles were those of democracy the ruthven party in scotland was the germ of that republican faction which afterwards extended to england and in the middle of the next century made the whole island empire shudder under the scourge of revolutionary anarchy the early leader of the democratic party in scotland was the head of a family of respectable rank among the lower nobility of Scotland, named Ruthven, which subsequently attained the earldom of Gowrie. In three distinct assaults on the personal liberty of the sovereign, the family of Ruthven were the instigators and principals. The brutal conduct of Lord Ruthven to Mary, Queen of Scots, when Rizzio was assassinated, is universally known. Then his son, the Earl of Gowrie, led the revolutionary movement called the Raid of Ruthven, when her son while yet a youth was seized and held captive till he effected his escape gowrie was beheaded but his young sons were not deprived of his family property the young earl of gowrie was educated in france and his brothers and sisters were reared and educated at court and given advantageous places about the person of the young queen when she first came to scotland her attachment to two of them alexander and beatrice who had both grown up under her protection has involved her name in a series of dark and obscure scandals of which most readers have heard, but of which no history has ever traced the origin or even defined the relative positions of the parties. It was very seldom that such a pertinacity of turbulence occurred as that manifested by three successive generations of the Ruthven family without the persons agitating had some claims to royal descent and connection it will be remembered that henry the eighth's sister margaret tudor queen of scotland set him the example of his bigamies by marrying and putting away a plurality of husbands and the Ruthvens claimed descent from a daughter of this queen by her third husband lord Methven. genealogists declare that this daughter of queen margaret was the first wife of lord ruthven and died childless but all the facts of the case strongly support the tradition that the earl of gowrie was her son since the very circumstance that james the sixth bestowed personal patronage on the children of this his mortal foe brought them up in his palace and placed them about his queen proves that they had claims of near relationship to him though he could not and would not own them as princes of the blood royal of england for if he had done so he must have illegitimized his own father's descent since the second husband of his great-grandmother queen margaret from whom lord darnley was descended survived her third husband lord methvin subsequently they could not both be her legal spouses neither could the children of both marriages be legitimate the domestic crimes of henry the eighth it is well known produced much bloodshed and civil calamity in england nor was Scotland without her share of the miseries of civil war, induced by the ill-conduct of his sister. It is certain that the Ruthven family aided in three several insurrections, disturbing public peace, and occasioning more or less bloodshed, because it was supposed that they were a branch of the royal family, possessing certain reversionary rights on the English birthright of James the Sixth, if he and his children were removed. Anne of Denmark has been implicated with the Gallery plot, a mysterious conspiracy against the life of her husband, of which the young Ruthvens were the leaders. But she is only connected with it by a tie slight as a silver ribbon, according to the following tale of court gossip. One day, in the summer preceding the birth of Charles I, says a very scandalous chronicle. The queen was walking in the gardens of Falkland Palace with her favorite maid of honor, Beatrice, when they came up to a tree under which Alexander Ruthven, who was but a youth of nineteen, laid fast asleep, overcome by the heat or violent exercise. The queen, it is said by some, and by others his sister, Beatrice Ruthven, tied a silver ribbon round his neck, which had been given to the queen by the king and left him sleeping. Presently, King James himself came by with his attendants, the silver ribbon caught his attention, and he bent over the sleeper and gazed on it very earnestly. The king, instead of waking Ruthven, who by the way was a gentleman of his own bedchamber, and asking him how he came by the ribbon, went his way, leaving the sleeper still sleeping. Back instantly came Beatrice Ruthven, who had been anxiously watching the demeanor of the king, twitched the ribbon from round her brother's neck, and fled leaving him it must be supposed in a sleep so sound as the celtic hero oscar who could only be roused by a monstrous stone being hurled against his head meantime beatrice rushed into the queen's presence and threw this ribbon into a drawer telling her majesty that her reason for doing so would be presently discovered King James, directly after, entered on the scene and demanded the sight of his silver ribbon in the tone of Othello, asking for the faded handkerchief. But the Queen of Scotland, more lucky than Desdemona, quietly took out the silver ribbon from the drawer into which Beatrice had just shut it and placed it in his hands. James examined it earnestly for some time and then pronounced his oracular sentence in broad scotch. Evil take me, if like be not an ill mark. From this pantomimic story, the writers of the 17th century have drawn the inference that King James himself contrived the Gowrie plot against his own life in order to revenge his jealous suspicions against the youth, Alexander Ruthven, and his queen. Yet, as the sister of the hero of the tale was concerned throughout the whole of the fantastic trifling with the silver ribbon, there is no reason to fix any stigma on the queen or on anyone else but those acquainted with the physiology of the plots of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries will not be surprised that a great calumny should have as slight a foundation to enter into the long details of the gallery plot here would be impossible it is almost to this hour a subject of party discussion and volumes of controversy have been written on the subject the only advantage of which is that many particulars have been preserved as evidence on one side or the other, throwing light on the manners and customs of a very obscure epoch. In the endeavor to recriminate the gallery plot on the King's party by foreknowledge of the calamities awaiting the House of Ruthven, the following incident is related of the Queen's pet maid of honor. Beatrice Ruthven was a girl of great vivacity and joyous spirits, more like the beatrice of shakespeare than the heroine of the puritan party in scotland one day she was laughing at dr harry's one of the magnates of the scotch episcopal church on account of his club foot or as she called it his bow at foot when the doctor annoyed at the discussion took her hand opened it peered curiously into it and said mistress leave laughing for i see ere long that a sad disaster will befall you the doctor merely meant to tame a teasing Coquette by an unlucky prediction, which might mean anything, from the death of her lapdog to the loss of her lover. But, as the incident befell within two days of the miserable catastrophe of her brothers, Dr. Harries got the credit of being a deep wizard, by one party, and foreknowledge of the gallery plot by the other. End of section 25